Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement in the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am Mike Bernhard, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World. Thank you to all of our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on work possible. Hi, I am Annette Kuhlmann. Today we get to learn about the EBEW project for homeless people in hospice, hear a report on the Faith Labor Breakfast, get a report on May Day in Milwaukee and Madison, and celebrate Nurses Week and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Solace House is a unique project of the Solace Friends that is focused on end-of-life care for people who are homeless. The Electrical Workers Minority Caucus, a group that is directly affiliated with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 159 in Madison, have stepped up to volunteer their time and expertise on this project. My name is Pablo Baxter, and I am an organizer with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Coal Workers, Local 159, here in Madison. The connection to Solace Friends is through another entity called the Electrical Workers Minority Caucus, which is directly affiliated with the IBEW, so we call them EWMC for short. The primary purpose of EWMC is to advocate for greater diversity and inclusiveness within the IBEW, and there's emphasis on increasing the numbers of people of color and women in leadership positions at all levels of IBEW. One of our local chapter goals here is civic responsibility, including volunteerism. Late last year, Solace Friends came and gave a presentation to the Union Building Trades Council of South Central Wisconsin. They proposed their concept to us and asked for volunteers or donations or resources or support at the very least. I thought that would be a great opportunity for our local EWMC chapter to undertake this project and give back to the community. And this is something we're not strangers to. We got in contact with the people at Solace House and have spent some time out there providing analysis and physical demolition services of existing electrical systems. And then we're planning to get set up once we have all the prints and approvals and permits to perform new construction services or remodel services for the house. What is the project that they're working on? What is Solace? Solace is a nonprofit entity whose aim is to support vulnerable populations in the community, specifically houseless individuals. And their aim with this location is to provide hospice or end-of-life care for individuals who would otherwise spend their final days on the street. This is the only location in the state of theirs and one of very few across the nation that perform a similar service. Their aim is to provide 
place for those individuals who can live out their final days in dignity, in a warm bed, with some good meals, and support of people around them. Where is it located? It's located on Monona Drive in Madison. What would you like listeners to know about your organization and the work you're doing? We are members of a labor union, so we are working people and we support working people. If we can help those friends in our community who are at the fringes of economic security, then we're doing a very worthwhile service, especially for somebody who is near the end of their days. Is it typical for unions to contribute in this way? Yeah, I think it's one of the core tenets of unions. We not only focus on supporting our members internally, but we want to support the communities that we live and work in. The Electrical Workers Minority Caucus is one committee of numerous ones we have here as part of IBEW Local 159. We also have a Young Persons Committee, a Women's Committee, a Veterans Committee, and all of those committees and more have certain events that they focus on where they find ways to give back to specific populations or just the community in general. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just strength in numbers and solidarity to the people. That was Pablo Baxter. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Workers and organizers gathered yesterday for breakfast to celebrate recent victories and get inspiration from their struggles. Carol Weidel has the report. On Thursday morning, Worker Justice Wisconsin held its Faith Labor Breakfast, bringing together workers who described their recent organizing. Workers at Crushnet Apparel won union representation, and they continued their struggle to get a first contract. Other workers, all Latinx and immigrant-led, formed worker cooperatives with the help of Worker Justice Wisconsin. These include a screen printing cooperative, a food cart, and a bakery. Many speakers described their struggles and their victories in organizing. Immigrant workers told their stories with the assistance of interpreters, describing how they were stronger together with the help of Worker Justice Wisconsin. Starbucks organizer Chanel Young described their campaign. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Okay, well, my name is Chanel Biami. I'm a business agent and bargaining representative for the, for the Starbucks campaign in Chicago Midwest Regional Joint Workers United. It is my pleasure to provide you with an update on the progress of the campaign. Currently, we have significant strides with about 300 stores participating in our campaign and CMRJB representing approximately 30% of this number. We are grateful for the support we have received thus far, and we implore you to continue to show your solidarity by attending actions and strikes and forming your coffee union strong. <laughs> I, would like, <laughs> I would like to express our profound gratitude to Workers' Justice for their unwavering support and educating the working class about the labor movement. I just can't thank you enough. You guys have been extremely amazing when it comes to helping us. Uh, <laughs> also, in conclusion, we remain committed to our cause to stand firm on our quest for fair labor practices to let us continue to work together in solidarity and endeavor to work to create a more equitable society. 
A report on each table listed the recovered lost wages of workers organized. 52% of workers who opened cases were women. 88% were primarily Spanish-speaking. You can learn more at workerjustice.org. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. The streets of Milwaukee were full on Monday during this year's Day Without Immigrants. Organizing continued into Tuesday, where in Madison, a march led by students filled the Capitol Rotunda and and organized labor was there. Greg Jabowski has more. Last Monday was May Day, International Workers' Day, and nationally, organizations that are part of the Fair Immigration Reform Movement Network held marches and rallies to pressure the Biden administration to deliver on promises to roll back anti-immigrant policies from past administrations and pass long-overdue protections for immigrants through executive action. In Wisconsin, the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Voces de la Frontera joined with youth members of youth empowered in the struggle, organized labor, and community members for two days of action in Milwaukee on Monday the 1st and in Madison on Tuesday the 2nd, with a focus on the statewide campaign to restore driver's licenses and to provide tuition equity, both of which were included as items in the proposed state budget of Governor Tony Evers. On Monday, nearly a thousand people braved sleet and bitter cold to gather on 5th Street in Milwaukee, ready to march. Among the speakers was Michael Rosen of Milwaukee Area Technical College and the American Federation of Teachers. The American Federation of Teachers Local 212, representing the faculty and professional staff at MATC, says driver's licenses now! Yeah. In state tuition now! Yeah. Stop the attacks on immigrant workers and immigrants and refugees now! Yeah. We stand shoulder to shoulder with Voces de la Frontera, with the youth group, yes, and with everybody fighting for bilingual classes, for English as a second language. We tell MATC with Voces to restore the classes, hire the teachers, and stop the attacks on immigrants, on education, and on refugees. Si se puede! Ryan, who works at St. Francis Hospital in Milwaukee and is part of a community and worker coalition that is fighting reduction in services there, addressed the crowd. Many of you have probably already heard about Ascension Wisconsin's heartless decision to close the labor and delivery unit at St. Francis. This is significant as it's the only unit of its kind serving women and others on Milwaukee's south side. This area of the city is predominantly Latinx and immigrant, with many such residents not even speaking English. The fact is, Ascension is peddling in racism when they close down essential services at hospitals like St. Francis or St. Joe's on the north side. Hospitals that serve black and brown communities while simultaneously investing in facilities in the rich white suburbs around Milwaukee. This is a pattern elsewhere where Ascension does business, but unlike in other places, St. Francis has a union with a... Join together with the community to fight back. 
Our union, the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, has led the way in forming this broad coalition. While we struggle for workers right on the shop floor, we also recognize that we must unite with communities we serve to protect the rights of the patients and families we serve. The crowd marched through the streets of Milwaukee to Zeidler Union Square Park. Nancy Ordonez, a ninth grader and member of Raza United at Madison's East High School, spoke in Milwaukee and was also ready to march in Madison on the following day. I want to thank everyone for being here today and fighting for, uh, for change across our Latinx and immigrant community. My people have to deal with many difficult situations every day in their lives just because they came searching for a better life and future for their parents. And we are tired of it! And March the next day they did, with hundreds of students from East, West, and La Follette High Schools in Madison joining at East High School and heading the over two-mile trek down Washington Avenue to the Capitol building. Power to the people! No one is illegal! Power to the people! No one is illegal! Mike Jones, president of Madison Teachers Incorporated, or MTI, marched the length of the route with the students. Jones explained why he was there representing teachers and their union. To provide support for our young leaders and the students who are marching because they are correct, you know, and we live in an extremely unjust society and they need to know also that on behalf of the teachers and educators and workers that I represent, that we are behind our young people 100%, especially when it comes to the rights of everyone in this country, in this community. MTI teachers see the effects of this discrimination on their students every day, Jones explains. You know, we've had a lot of experiences where we are trying to help our young people process the trauma of experiencing such racism and discrimination in the society from having ICE raids happening right outside the schools back in 2016-2017 to trying to help them with their college applications while they're undocumented to just our social workers helping families access basic needs during the pandemic and being denied because they're considered quote-unquote illegal, although no one can really be illegal. As the marchers gathered on the Capitol steps, they were joined by a contingent of UW students who had marched from the other direction, and the group entered the building. As students and others rallied and spoke in the rotunda, demanding their rights, the Republican-dominated Joint Finance Committee was meeting above them on the fourth floor of the Capitol and voted to slash not only the driver's license and tuition equity provisions, but a total of 545 items in the Evers' proposed budget, gutting the governor's suggested program. Activists have pledged to carry on the fight. A May 4th statement from Voces de la Frontera stated in part, the Joint Finance Committee's decision to strip 545 provisions from the Wisconsin state budget, including restoring access to driver's licenses and in-state tuition for immigrants, is shameful. Voces de la Frontera will continue to move forward with engaging Latinx and multiracial youth statewide. Some publicly available online audio from the Monday March was used with the permission of Voces de la Frontera and is available in full on the VDLF Facebook page. The Tuesday March and the budget fight were covered on the WORT 6 o'clock news and are available on the WRT archives at wordfm.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. There will be a rally to support public education at the Capitol at 2 p.m. on May 20th. John Havelak, uh, a lacrosse public school teacher and WIAC member, gets the word out about Governor Eva's state budget. Can you tell us about the Rally for Public Education? It's Saturday, May 20th at 2 o'clock. It's at the state capitol, State Street entrance. What we're trying to do is 
show the community, show the state, show the state legislators just how important it is that they take the vast majority of Tony Evers' budget proposals. There are a lot of proposals in there that deal directly with public education, such as an increase in revenue limits and an increase in per-pupil funding and an increase in special education reimbursement. But then there's also a lot of things that are not education-related. There are some things that actually make our elections a little more secure. There are things that make it easier for farmers to get their produce to market. There are things for small businesses, and and there's really quite a bit of stuff really for everybody all around the state. And so what we'd like to do is have folks come on down. Let the legislators know that you got to start listening to your constituents. I would encourage your listeners to check it out, read the budget in brief, and then come on down to the rally on Saturday, May 20th at 2 p.m. State Capitol, State Street Entrance. That was John Havlicek. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself. The operation of a paper mill was stopped as workers became sick sick from a fungus that lives in the wood pulp. Carol Weidel spoke to the reporter from the Detroit Free Press who covered the story. Uh, Keith Maffini, I'm the environmental reporter for the Detroit Free Press. How did this emerge, this infection? There were some cases arising out of the Billy Rood paper mill in Escanaba. I've learned that people started getting sick back in February, and it was initially being kind of diagnosed as bacterial pneumonia. Then the treatments weren't helping, and some further testing revealed it was blastomycosis, which is a fungal infection. And I think it was around early March when it was determined, hey, there's there's kind of a connection here. There's multiple people uh, who are exhibiting these symptoms and who are either testing positive through biopsies for blastomycosis or the antibodies or antigens in their saliva or their urine. By early March, they knew it was a public health concern, not just kind of like individual cases here and there. When workers breathe the spores, how does their infection progress? Most people who uh, inhale these spores don't get sick. Then a big cohort of people who inhale the spores just have really mild symptoms, like a cold or the flu. Uh, And then it can go on up to very serious complications and even death, and there has been one death associated with the Billy Rood uh, outbreak. The mill is closed right now and uh, the workers are being paid? Yes, that's correct. They're doing a, kind of a, what I understand is like a deep cleaning, refiltration of the air ventilation systems. They're examining the uh, you know raw materials that have been coming into the mill. When the mill reopens, will people be wearing respirators or masks? It's my understanding that a lot of people were wearing them uh even when this happened. So that's one of the kind of the puzzling things here. Another uh, kind of mystery is according to Billy Rood, uh, they have not yet found any blastomycosis spores in their examination of the material there. So, so one of the speculations is whatever it was, you know, passed through the, passed through the mill maybe months ago. And, and people got exposed to it then, but it's kind of come and gone type of thing. 
So it's still a pretty big mystery about what exactly happened here. And, and one of the things I find curious is that mill has something like many thousands of tons of wood pulp product moving through it daily. And we know that these spores exist in nature, you know, where they're getting these materials from. Why hasn't this happened before? What particularly happened this time that, that made a difference? So since you're an environmental reporter, I, I expect you'll reporting on you'll be reporting on this more. Yeah, we're definitely keeping our eye on it to see if there's any new developments. But it's not clear that again, it, there might not be. It might just be this was an event that has come and passed. One of the things that uh, we have to kind of be mindful of is when people inhale these spores, uh, their symptoms can arise within three weeks up to three months. So if people were exposed around February, there could still be new cases emerging even, you know, right around now. Uh, and I expect since the National Institute on Safety and Health is involved, they're going to be doing some more investigation. Yes, uh, at least as of a, a week or two ago, uh, I knew they had come back up to Escanaba and were uh, working with the workers, wanting to do more tests on them, wanting to do questionnaires with them to try to get a better sense of whether there's any patterns that emerge about how this happened. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Next week is Nurses Week, and we have an announcement about two ways that you can celebrate. Hi, I'm Victoria Gutierrez, a proud union nurse with SEIU Wisconsin. Two things this year to honor nurses for Nurses Week 2023, which is May 6th through May 12th. On Friday, May 12th, we are hosting the second annual Honor a Nurse and Save a Life Blood Drive. SEIU Wisconsin nurses at Meritor Hospital are hosting this blood drive at the Madison Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street, Friday, May 12th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. There will be nurses there to greet you and help you register. There will be food after the donations. Walk-ins are welcome. Also, pre-registering is encouraged. You can pre-register at redcrossblood.org. You enter the sponsor code Meritor Nurses Week, or you can call 1-800-RED-CROSS. We are also organizing a taco truck on Thursday, May 11th on the corner of Mound Street and Brook Street in front of the hospital from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Everyone is welcome to come on out and have a taco. We hope that you can come out and honor a nurse that you know or a nurse that maybe has taken care of you. Happy Nurses Week. Writers across the entertainment industry are on strike for the first time in over a decade. Labor Radio has a story. Over 20,000 writers for television, radio, and the big screen are holding the picket lines after voting to initiate a strike earlier this week. They are represented by the Writers Guild of America, one of several unions representing workers in the entertainment industry. This is the first labor stoppage by union writers since their 100-day strike shut down the entertainment industry in late 2007 and early 2008 and one of the largest disruptions to entertainment production since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. They're faced down by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, a trade association representing big studios like Universal and Disney, as well as streaming giants Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. 
distance remains between the two sides on the matter of residuals, the money that writers receive when their work gets reused. That income provides a buffer during the frequent downtime between jobs, and occasionally accounts for a significant proportion of a writer's annual earnings. Writers receive far lower residuals for streaming than broadcast television. And now that the former dominates the industry, and nearly half of all writers are working for the contract's minimum compensation level, regardless of experience, the current setup leaves them unable to make a living. A WGA report finds that writer pay has declined 4% over the past decade, which amounts to 23% when adjusted for inflation. Another priority set by writers is a staffing requirement for television shows. The rise of streaming, which now generates the bulk of the industry's profits, has brought a proliferation of quote, mini-rooms, primarily consisting of a showrunner aided by one or a few writers. That change has not only meant overwork for those in such rooms, but a reduction in writing work altogether. When the WGA proposed to regulate such understaffing, the AMPTP refused. In other words, for the WGA, the stakes of the strike are existential. The studios want to gigify writing, eroding the stability on which the career, and the work it produces, depends, as well as reducing the total number of jobs that exist. This sentiment is further evidenced by the studio's unwillingness to meet writers' demands on regulating the use of artificial intelligence in the industry. While writers are pushing for a ban on the use of AI for rewriting existing material and creating new source material, the AMPTP is not budging further than offering annual meetings on advancing technology. Strikes in the WGA's past have stretched out over the course of months. The 2007 strike lasted 100 days, and another in 1988 lasted over five months. Based on the gulf between the two sides in 2023, it is difficult to see a quick path towards a resolution to this one either. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hager up. Support OPEIU 39 union members who are in a battle with CUNA Mutual Group tomorrow, Saturday, May 6th at 10 a.m. at Capitol Square. This is a community rally for a fair contract in advance of Local 39's unfair labor practice strike. A family-friendly event at the Dane County Farmer's Market. The entire community is invited to hear speakers and to voice your support for the workers at CUNA Mutual Group. That's tomorrow at 10 a.m. at the State Street Steps by the Lady Forward statue. Labor Radio co-founder, union organizer, and longtime Madison activist Alan LaLuzerne passed away on Friday, April 14th. A memorial celebration of her life will take place on Saturday, May 6th at Rennebaum Park in Madison from noon to 3 p.m. Bring food to share, beverage for yourself, no glass please, a folding chair if you want a comfortable seat, and your favorite memories of this remarkable woman. A week from tomorrow, Saturday, May 13th, your letter carrier, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers, will collect non-perishable food. Prepare your donations now. Avoid glass containers. This is the largest one-day food collection in the United States. Your donation stays in the Madison community.
Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Thanks to editor Frank Amsberg, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Gabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Jeannie Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Andrew Lee, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WRT Staff Collective. And I'm Mike Bernhard. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>